Hello, my name is Ryan, and I've been attending this church since 2003. Hello, my name is Stephanie, and I've been attending WCPC since I was a child. And today we are going to speak about our stewardship journey and what stewardship means to us. Although Stephanie has gone to church throughout her entire life, I did not start regularly attending church until college. At that time, my motivations were primarily for a girl. And I lacked a little bit of trust in the church. Sermons on stewardship, finances, and tithing were difficult. My reaction was to protect our little but hard-earned money. And whether it was a budget update on the general fund or capital campaign ask, my thoughts would jump to accountability for the church and say things like, show me that the church can be responsible before I give my money. And to me, a tithe was just a tax and the church needed to demonstrate how my tithe tax dollars were being used wisely. But just as there aren't many joyful taxpayers, I was not a joyful giver. In reality, I was a tax collector. I was taxing God's blessings, taking the lion's share and not leaving much in return for others. And with no immediate accountability, I was not being a good steward of God's gifts. When we borrow a good friend's car, we become the steward of something important. And in turn, we may drive safer, fill it up with gas, or wash it before we turn it. At minimum, we put in the effort for what we're charged to care for. And in doing so, we show respect and love to the giver. With this, I reframe my thinking and actions from taxing blessings to get my share to instead honor God for things I was entrusted with. This meant being responsible and putting in the effort to recognize opportunities, multiply blessings when possible, and generally do my best to glorify God. To be fair, I could be doing better. God has shown a lot of patience because it's been a long road since college, but stewardship has continued to grow in meaning in our life and how we operate as a family. For example, Stephanie and I are stewards of our son, Luke. We're charged with his care to guide him into adulthood in a way that honors God. We are also stewards of our marriage to uphold our vows. And as members of this congregation, we are stewards of this church, reflecting God's love through WCPC's mission its actions and facilities. Stephanie and I seek to be part of how this church serves God's kingdom, from gestures welcoming those arriving on campus, to baking cookies or checking kids into Sunday school, to even the harder financial asks of building accessible bathrooms or to improve the campus for hospitality. Our ability to give financially over the years has definitely varied, but our family's view on stewardship has made financial contributions joyful regardless of the circumstances. The current market has been rough, Jobs are uncertain and I don't know what the future holds, but our family will continue trusting in God and trying to be good stewards through the easy and the tough times. And now a reading from God's word. Here are several passages from Ephesians 1 through 3. Ephesians 1, 1 through 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Ephesians 3, 20-21 Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, 
throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, thank you so much, Ryan and Stephanie. We often say, like, the sermon has already been preached. The sermon has already been preached. That was amazing. Thank you. Um, I'm Bart Garrett, who will uh, try my best at a second sermon this morning, Uh, lead pastor here, and I join Tommy in welcoming you. And I want to remind you, uh, today is our family meeting day, so immediately following the service, we hope you'll consider staying for about 25 minutes here before we go out on the lawn and have a party with great food and refreshments and such, and the slide will be out and all those things. But uh, if you're members, we especially want you to be here. But even if you're brand new to the church, uh, we think this is a great way for you to step into the kitchen and just uh, watch us be church for a few minutes. And so you're more than welcome to stay. It'll last about 20, 25 minutes. More to come on that. Um, as a Christian person, let me say, uh, that song, uh, I Surrender All, Uh, has in it the the genuine heart's cry. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. And it really does invoke a fundamental truth of the Christian faith, which is this. Uh, We give all of ourselves back to God because God has given all of God to us. Yet if we're honest, our calendars and our checkbooks, which represent our time and our money, can convey a less than whole surrender to God. And this is not me chastising you and peeling my finger at you at all. Um, I'm actually just acknowledging that surrendering all to God is a process and it is difficult. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian person. Perhaps you're here out of curiosity or you've been just sort of rolling along at life and you hit the pandemic pothole and you have a ton of questions now or maybe you lost a bet maybe a nagging friend or neighbor just keeps inviting you to this church and you're finally here today you know maybe you're not sure why you're here Uh, but let me just say uh, we welcome you into our presence and I know that some of you who are here for the first time or the first time in a long time may be like here's the church again talking about money they were talking about money 12 years ago when I left and here they are talking about money again well Let me just offer a couple things to you uh, on that front. One, um, really most every organization is in some form or fashion talking about money. Maybe that's the school your kids go to or maybe you go to a concert and your favorite musician has that give, you know, text to the charity right in the middle of the concert. But let me suggest this. The church, and I believe this with all my heart, is the only organization that wants generosity firstly for you before it wants generosity from you. Uh, In other words, when when you think about a eulogy, when you think about your funeral, you want it said of you, this person is grateful and generous. They live a life of thank you and they're generous with other people. And I'm actually going to be eulogizing some of you. And so as I do, um, don't make me rack my brain to try to find good things to say of you. (laughs) All right? So that's what we're also after here. Um, But for Christians and and non-Christians alike, uh, the Bible suggests that every good and perfect gift comes from God. In fact, God created us creatures out of desire. We are creatures of desire. And we're placed in a world that's meant to be enjoyed. So Christians are not sour and dour people. Christians are not the people that suppose, oh no, somewhere somebody's having a good time. Instead, we actually enjoy life in an unfettered way. 
We're called to appreciate good coffee and fine wine and a rocking concert and a stirring novel and a moving play. These are actually opportunities for us to praise the good gift giver for all the gifts that God has lavished upon us. Yet here's the thing. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, whom you know, is is a great uh, American intellect, wonderful preacher. He talked about sin, uh, and we talk about it in a number of ways here, but sin is ultimately the distortion of thanks and praise. In other words, it's, it's thanking and praising the wrong things. So these good gifts, these goods in our lives become gods that rule our lives when they are out of proportion with the rest of our life. And this begins often subtly, doesn't it? We're, we're searching for significance or status or security or pleasure or approval or meaning or purpose or affirmation uh, with what we buy, with where we go, with what we do. And then these impulses also often subtly begin to shape who we are, don't they? So we look around at other people and we compare and contrast We might feel better about ourselves, so pride or conceit or contempt take root in our hearts. Or maybe we feel bad about ourselves when we compare with other people, so jealousy and envy and bitterness start to have their way. And God sort of recedes into the background, a miniature version of who God is. Our loves become disordered, our deepest desires disconnected from the source. And what's the result? We live our life frantically. We yield to the frenetic pursuit of buying things or experiences that we do not need with money we do not have to impress people we do not like, as you've heard it said, right? Well, the song, the lyrics get sung differently, wittingly or unwittingly. I surrender some. Some to Jesus, I surrender. Some to Jesus, I sort of give. Well, we'll be talking this month, uh, and this is our stewardship series. We do it every, every year, and we're in the book of Ephesians, and we'll be talking about these three T's. You've heard us talk about time and talent and treasure and how we steward those things towards a pledge campaign, which Tommy will say more about. But I'm tasked this week with one of the T's, treasure, and I want to just talk about it from this passage under four questions that I'll answer uh, quickly, hopefully. One of them, uh, what is your treasure? Secondly, where is it hidden? Thirdly, how will your pastors pray for you? Which doesn't seem like it connects, but it will. And then fourthly, what's the good word? Which also doesn't seem like it connects, but it will. So what is your treasure? Where is your treasure hidden? How do your pastors pray for you? And what is the good word? So what is your treasure? Well, Jesus did a teaching on treasure. You remember it in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves instead treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus would have been speaking Aramaic, and he would have used the word for treasure, simita, which I'm sure I'm saying incorrectly, but it's this notion of, of laying your hands on something. But probably, Jesus also used the play on the word, another Aramaic word, simkat, which means your joy, your comfort, your security. In other words, Jesus is saying your treasure is where you place your joy, your comfort, and your security. 
and your treasure, where your treasure is, where your joy and comfort and security lie, your heart, a Jewish person would know this, is the whole of who they are would chase after it. So, for example, you treasure your child if you have children. What happens? Your heart gets plucked out and placed in their little body that runs around the room. And it never changes. My wife and I just this Friday watched our 21-year-old daughter run in a, in a race all the way across the country. My heart was plucked out running around that entire cross-country course. And that's not a bad thing. God created us as parents to love that way unless that treasure becomes your ultimate treasure where you place your joy, your comfort, your security. So Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians, he had this radical conversion to Jesus. And you have to know, he treasured his status and his prestige. He was a holy man, a Pharisee. This brought him all sorts of security. And as a result, he ended up inflicting pain and duress and suffering on others. He was persecuting uh, Christians because his status and security and wealth were placed upon his Judaism. And then he has this radical conversion to Jesus. So all of Ephesians 1, and in fact, the first 14 verses of Ephesians mention Jesus by name 15 times and refer to us as being in Christ 11 times because it's as if Paul is saying, what is God's treasure? My treasure was misplaced. What is God's treasure? Well, if I am to be found in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, then I have become God's treasured possession. In other words, you're kind of a big deal when God looks at you. So, where then, secondly, is your treasure hidden? If it's about joy and comfort and security, where are you placing it? Well, 1 verse 3, as Stephanie read it, I'll read it again. God blesses us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. And so every spiritual blessing, just so you don't like cause that word to sprout wings and fly away, spiritual blessing means the the blessings of the Holy Spirit. So they don't have to be immaterial. This may be vocational, emotional, relational, physical, spiritual blessing. It's all of them. All of them are held, are hidden in the heavenly realms. That's an expression that that gets brought up five times in this little letter to the church at Ephesus. And in ancient times, heaven meant any number of things. Heaven could just refer to the heaven of nature, which is quite literally the sky, the heavens above. It might be referred to as the heaven of grace, which is this eternal abundant life is already placed into our hearts through the grace of God in Christ. And that's why you don't talk about, you don't hear me talk a lot about getting into heaven. I'm mostly talking about getting heaven into you, getting the reality of God's heaven, God's grace in your life. The third way the ancients wrote about heaven was as the heaven of glory, which is this, dare I say, this is another sermon, intermediate intermediate state between this earth and the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, the theologian has put it, uh, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. I love that. The world is going somewhere, and heaven is this, uh, this intermediate glory until we all arrive there in the new heavens and the new earth. But, but none of those three is what Paul is actually talking about in the heavenly realms. What he's talking about in the heavenly realms is, is something like this, this unseen world where every spiritual reality, every blessing of God is present. And the the best way I could 
think about illustrating this is with the, uh, the series Stranger Things. And if you haven't seen the series Stranger Things, this is not a spoiler alert or anything like that. You can still watch it and you'll know what's going on. But in Stranger Things, there's this place called the Upside Down. And the Upside Down is sort of where all the evil is residing. And so you can be in a room and then you're just in the room, but all of a sudden you can see sensory experience, the Upside Down, the evil that is there. Well, the heavenly realms is the right side up. It's the inverse of that. It's when you're in a room and all of a sudden you can just sort of recognize and receive and experience these spiritual realities. Heaven is somehow in a um, uh, almost a sensory way or at the very least some sort of dimensional way is there. So where the upside down produces fear, uh, the right side up produces this settled confidence. It's a place where ROI, return on investment, is always exponential. It's recession-proof. There's no such thing as a bear market in the heavenlies. There is no need to diversify your portfolio in the heavenlies. It's all there. So what about you then? Where are you hiding or placing your treasure? Where are you finding your joy, seeking your comfort, establishing your security? Um, I wrote a number of questions that I'll just ask here, and I might suggest a great exercise, a fun exercise might be to take your journal, or maybe you're in a community group and you could do this together, and come up with more questions like these that might answer this question and get us to our joy and our comfort and our security. These are some that I came up with. Um, what makes me anxious? What causes me to be afraid? What makes me angry? What if I were to do a three-month audit of my checkbook and my calendar? How am I spending my money? How am I spending my time? Or a different take on it, what am I most often praying for? might take me to my joy, my comfort, my security. Or maybe this, if I just had fill in the blank, then all would be well. What am I seeking to protect? What am I lying to hide or conceal? Any number of questions will take us to where we're hiding or placing our treasure, where we're finding our joy, seeking comfort, establishing security. So that's the first two questions. What about the third one, and how does it connect to this? How do your pastors pray for you? Well, the, the glory of Paul's letters, they're often framed up as like doctrine and ethics. And maybe you think that that's what your pastors are always doing. They're telling you what you should believe and how you should behave. So this is what you need to believe, and you need to go out there and behave a certain way. And there's, that's scriptural, of course, but Ephesians is mostly about prayer and worship. In fact, Ephesians 1 through 3 is almost entirely a prayer that Paul is praying over the people of God. We pick it up here in verse 14. I pray that we pray as your pastors like Paul prays. What does Paul pray? Well, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, his treasure, God may, 
And then I'm going to just riff off of John Stott here, the, the late Anglican minister who's a pastoral hero of mine. He would pray this prayer regularly over his church, and he called it the four-step prayer, uh, the stairway to prayer, because there are four things that Paul prays for the people. Strength, love, knowledge, and fullness. Strength, love, knowledge, and fullness. And I'll say a brief word about each of them. Firstly, he prays out of his glorious riches that the people of God would be strengthened by the indwelling of Christ through the Spirit. Now, this is so cool, okay? Do not miss this. In order to get and realize God's presence, God's presence is so overpowering and so overwhelming that you cannot handle it unless God's Spirit prepares you by strengthening you. So I think about Peter when this uh, larger-than-life net load of fish came in, and Jesus walked by, and what did Peter say? Get away from me. I'm too unclean. You are too much to handle unless God's Spirit indwells and empowers you. In this indwelling presence of Christ, there's two words for dwelling in Scripture. One is how a stranger just passes through. The other is about a permanent residence. And Paul is saying, I'm praying that you would be strengthened by the indwelling presence of Christ who takes up permanent residence in your life, which is not bad news. That means Jesus is there in all the highs and the lows, through the thick and through the thin, through the laughter and the tears. Strength. Secondly, love. That you would be rooted and grounded in love. So you prefer rural and agrarian and botanical? Think deep roots, a a tap root that goes all the way down. Or you prefer urban and modern and architectural? Well, think this foundational pillar that sinks so far down deep, a 10.0 earthquake couldn't, couldn't topple it. So Paul is likening the people to a well-rooted tree on the one hand and a well-built structure on the other hand. And in both cases, the unseen cause of their stability is the same. Do you know what it is? The love of God in Christ. It's a real blessing for me as a pastor here to have walked through difficulties and suffering and surgeries and traumas and tragedies with many of you. And so many of you display this otherworldly stability of the love of God in Christ. That's what your pastors are praying for you. Strength, love, thirdly, knowledge. To know this love, Christ's love, in all of its dimensions through its breadth, length, height and depth. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, that God's love is broad enough for every nationality and ethnicity and class and gender. There's no center to it. That God's love is long enough that it lasts forever and ever and ever and ever. That God's love is deep enough that it casts light on the darkest caverns in our hearts. Just this week, I was talking to a, a pastor friend who told me of the story of a, of a guy in his church who uh, was his workout buddy two times a week, and this guy had completely concealed a, a secret life of sexual addiction. My pastor friend had no idea this was going on. It ended up breaking up his marriage three or four years ago. Um, well, this guy uh, calls my pastor friend early in the morning and said, I had a dream last night 
there was this really dark force that brandished a sword and cut my heart right out of my body. What do I do? And my friend said, repent. Turn back to God. And this person went through a lot of work to get better, to get healed, and reestablished the marriage relationship. Last year, my friend officiated the wedding. Why? Because Christ's love is deep enough to reach the darkest places in our life. Fourthly, it's, it's high enough. It scrapes the celestial ceiling. The angels are darting and flitting about right now in the context of Christ's love. That they may know love that surpasses knowledge, which is an enigma rolled up in a mystery, I know, but it's that know what you know. You know, I, I just, I don't know how I know it, but I know it. God's love. And then fourthly, the prayer your pastors are praying is the fullness of God. It would be filled right up to the measure of God's fullness. And this is not a once and for all thing. The preposition suggests it's this ongoingly being filled up. So all of the measure of God's fullness, all of eternity, is just the filling and the filling and the filling and the filling of how whole and complete God is. In sum, strength, love, knowledge, and fullness is a prayer that they would know that you would know that you are God's treasure. You are God's treasured possession. So after Paul prays this prayer, the fourth question, what's the good word? Some of you called it. That's the benediction. The good word. 3, 20, and 21. We're going to use it as our benediction throughout this stewardship series. But these far-ranging prayers for the people conclude with this spontaneous outburst of praise. And you could ask the question, well, is Paul really asking for too much? Can God come through? Well, however far a desire or a thought or a prayer can reach, even the desire and the thought and the prayer of this apostle in such an exalted moment of inspiration, however far that is, God can do infinitely more. In other words, Paul coins this super superlative to express the exceeding abundance. He calls it the hyperic parasu. Super abundantly. It's a made-up word. This is the supercalifragilistic expialidocious of God's blessing, God's work. So think about what God could do. Double it, triple it, quadruple it. And one day we'll look back on this present moment and we'll see how short-sighted we all were. Or as Tim Keller put it on prayer, God will either give us what we asked for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that God knows. So what about you? As we conclude, as you consider these things, imagine with me for a moment, you're walking on a beach, there's been a big storm, there's all sorts of stuff, floatsome and jetsome that have washed ashore. And you're looking through what seems to be wreckage, perhaps from an old ancient ship, and you find one of those ancient Middle Eastern oil lamps. So you clean it off and out pops, not a genie, but Jesus. And you're surprised and you say something like, oh wait, you're Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm here to grant you three wishes. And you say, really? And Jesus says, yes, that's the way Bart's concluding sermon illustration works. <laughs> and you say, a little bit surprised and taken aback, okay, then I would love an amazing beach house right over there on that cliff. 
And for my second wish, I'd love for all my kids and all my grandkids to get full scholarships to college. And for my third wish, I wish I could be in some sort of alternative reality where I'd never watched Tiger King and I could get all those hours back. And Jesus just stands there awkwardly. And you're not sure what he'll say. And then all of a sudden, he grants you all three wishes. He says something about Carol Baskins and her catchphrase, hey, all you cool cats and kittens, and how weird it was. And then he says, those are all fine wishes. So you feel a bit relieved. And then he says, would you like to know what I would have wished for? Come follow me. And I'll show you. See, that's a summons to begin to surrender all. Jesus, the treasure that treasures you, calling you away from a life of ownership that says everything I've got I've earned into a life of stewardship that says everything I have is a gift from God. So imagine as we come to this table if this truth begins to take hold of us more and more, how life-giving it would be. Ownership says what we have we must cling to. Stewardship says what we have is available to others. Ownership says we're reservoirs. Stewardship says we're rivers. Ownership says to spend or save in pursuing status or security. Stewardship says first, share. The more we see ourselves as stewards, and the less we see ourselves as owners, the less entangled we feel and the freer we will be. Pressure dissipates when we know everything we have is a gift from God. Anxiety melts away when we trust God's extravagant giving rather than our earning potential. Joy abounds when we experience generosity breaking our shrink-wrapped heart and growing it bigger and bigger and bigger. So Jesus says, yes, the houses, the cars, the colleges, those are all fine wishes. You feel a bit relieved. And then he says, would you like to know what I would have wished for? Come follow me and I'll show you. Let's pray. God, with this series through this beautiful letter, Ephesians, not ring hollow as a the church wants my money moment. But would we recognize through it, uh, Paul's prayers are all about creating the immensity of a life in which your exceeding abundance just continues to flow. And we cannot help but say thank you as we become more and more generous. It's in your name we pray. Amen.